When ministers travel around the United Kingdom, security is tight. But what if a foreign government is tracking these ministers' every move in real time, having infiltrated the very vehicles tasked with keeping them safe? It might sound like the plot from a 1980s espionage thriller, but I has uncovered how growing fears around spyware from foreign actors led to the discovery of a hidden Chinese tracking device in a UK government car. And while Chinese officials categorically deny any involvement, the story has Westminster in uproar and has shone a light on the threat emanating from this superpower. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and in this episode, we will be speaking to senior reporter Richard Holmes on his exclusive investigation into hidden devices found inside official vehicles that has shone a light on what some are calling a systemic threat posed by Chinese intelligence. Later, we'll hear from our science writer about tips you can use to avoid falling for bad science writing in 2023. But first, we're joined by Richard to tell us about his investigation into alleged Chinese surveillance at the highest levels of government. Hi, Richard. So tell us about what your reporting has revealed. So our reporting revealed that over recent months, officials tasked with protecting our government have been stripping government and diplomatic vehicles back down to their very last nuts and bolts in search of suspected Chinese tracking devices. And we've heard that at least one government vehicle has revealed this device. So tell us a bit more about these devices. What are they and how is the one that they have discovered believed to have gotten there? So these are essentially SIM cards. Most commercial trackers that you'd buy, you know, off the internet are essentially just SIM cards attached to a battery. These are SIM cards which are placed there during the manufacturing process without the manufacturer's knowledge. And I didn't know this before I started looking at this, but majority of of modern day cars now will have actual SIM cards in them. These can be used to connect to live navigation systems or put there by manufacturers to keep live updates on your vehicle. If you need servicing, it sends messages back to the manufacturer. However, these SIM cards that have been discovered have been put there without the manufacturer's knowledge. They're believed to have been placed secretly inside components sought by manufacturers from China. They're supplied to manufacturers in sealed units and therefore the car manufacturers don't open them and don't spot these devices and they're placed unknowingly into these cars which are then rolled out commercially and to government And they're capable of tracking the location of a vehicle, tracking uh, how long a vehicle's been stopped for, and even tracking how a vehicle's been driven. What are government cars used for, and what's the interest in tracking them? So government cars, I mean, they could be used for a, a host of different things. It could be simply taking an MP from Whitehall to a meeting somewhere else. It could be taking a diplomatic officer home, potentially, or, you know, taking any government employee to any government site. And I think that's why it is of interest to hostile states to track this sort of information. And it's not necessarily 
a targeted attack on government, but it's just indicative of China's widespread use of surveillance, really, just in case there's any area of interest. They can pinpoint that area and take a look at this data. They can just cover a wide net in terms of these vehicles' movements and then pinpoint at a later date to see if there's anything of interest. So the government's vehicles could be, you know, relatively benign to a large extent, but there's the possibility that you could be following officers on their way to Porton Down, for example, and figuring out trends and seeing where they live or finding out where ministers are going to secret MOD locations. You know, the possibilities are endless when you sort of look at this widespread capability that they're creating. We should stress that China has denied any wrongdoing or involvement in this kind of behaviour. Tell us what Chinese officials have said to you in response to this story. Sure. So in response to our story, the Chinese embassy in, in the UK said the story on the hidden Chinese spyware is groundless and sheer rumour. We are firmly opposed to political manipulation on normal economic and trade cooperation or any smear on Chinese enterprises. The Chinese government always encourages Chinese companies to carry out foreign trade and investment cooperation in line with local laws as well as market principles and international rules. They also say that we are firmly against some people's moves to deliberately overstretch the concept of national security to wear down Chinese enterprises. The global industrial and supply chains come into shape as a result of both the law of the market and the choices of business. Smearing and suppressing Chinese enterprises and pushing for decoupling and disrupting industrial and supply chains not only seriously undermines international trade rules, but will fragment the global market and sabotage the security and stability of global industrial and supply chains. What's your reaction to that, Richard? I mean, it's expected. I wasn't expecting the Chinese embassy to come out and admit that they had been, you know, systemically tracking government vehicles or anything like that. I think it's an expected response if you look at their um, dealings with similar stories like this in the past with the media. Personally, I think their section on deliberately overstretching the concept of national security to wear down Chinese enterprises is kind of highlighting a theme which is only building at the moment in government where suspicion around certain Chinese technology and links from Chinese technology to Chinese espionage are being made. We've seen that with, you know, Hikvision CCTV cameras, which have recently been barred in Parliament. And I think that response kind of plays into that. And they're, they're seeing this trend build where, you know, people are making the connection with Chinese technology and possible Chinese state espionage. Let's talk more about that link between technology, because there's a strong emphasis, isn't there, in this statement on trade and business. Mm. How do incidents like this and reporting like yours impact our trading relationship with China? Well, I think as we learn more about China's capability and China's willingness to conduct widespread sort of eavesdropping campaigns or espionage campaigns, that is naturally going to have a knock-on effect with our trade agreements. Just last night in the Commons, the new procurement bill was being debated, and it's essentially a bill which determines the rules around how government seeks, you know, 
services or equipment and our story was raised there in the context of you know how can we trust Chinese suppliers if they're tracking us and the government has actually said in response to concerns raised last night that they will be seriously looking at these Chinese suppliers and not only that but they will be ensuring to look through the entirety of the supply chain not just at the top level so they're actually going to be hopefully taking action on this and looking at each Chinese supplier and seeing if there could be some sort of nefarious state involvement along the way. As you mentioned, Richard, the story was mentioned in the House of Commons on Monday evening, along with a a wider push to update national security rules in order to protect us from espionage. Let's have a listen to what senior Tory MP Alicia Kearns said about your story. We have to update the rules. Over the weekend, there was a story about tracking devices uh, found hidden within government cars. Our data is important because it reveals not just the locations we go to in our cars, but who our friends and networks are, our vulnerabilities, our habits, our activities that allow us to be threatened, to be blackmailed, to be undermined or to be tracked otherwise. Now, these cellular IoT nodes that were called uh, SIM cards within the media, if they were duplicitly installed, then that's CCP espionage. But more likely, these are standard technologies that are installed within all cars. Now, this suggests why this bill is so important and why we need national security considerations, because there are citizens, all of our constituents at the moment, we will have constituents driving around who have these cellular IoT modules within their cars. Any of those individuals could be pinpointed if they drove near a secure site by the Chinese government and then tracked. And the Chinese Communist Party will know where they live, how they live their lives, what they do, and they all become vulnerable. If they work out who the Prime Minister's security team is, which they could do quite easily, let's look at the cars, travel out of number 10, and then go back to Prime Minister's house all the time, they could then track those security officers to where they're doing recce's of future visits, and they will know where our Prime Minister is travelling to. They could do it to any of us if they wanted to make us vulnerable. Richard, what's your view of the reaction to this piece within the British political establishment? Well, I think it's, first of all, great that MPs are taking notice of this and it's a growing concern now and it's at the forefront of the political mind when we're looking at sort of procurement from potential hostile states. But I think there's plenty more to be done because there's a key point in this where the intelligence I've been told is that this is not a targeted attack on government but more of a widespread problem with automotive industry The government kind of has a responsibility now to let the public and let car manufacturers know if this is such a widespread problem and if there are concerns on that because the data gathering capabilities of this are massive. We need a greater navigation on how to deal with this and what the serious real-term threat of this is. As part of of your investigation into this, you've obviously been speaking to contact inside the intelligence community. I realise you're going to keep your cards very close to your chest here, but what, if anything, can you tell us about who your sources are on this? So yeah, I mean, I'm going to be very careful and probably not give too much information in terms of the sources on this story. (laughs) But I'd spoken to two very well-informed senior intelligence officers for this story, both of which have direct knowledge of these widespread searches being conducted on government and diplomatic vehicles. And one serving intelligence officer has knowledge that at least one device was found inside a government vehicle. 
As well as that, I've been speaking to at least nine other intelligence sources from GCHQ or elsewhere in government departments about this issue who all confirm that this is a plausible and real threat that they can see China having the capability of conducting. Carrying out an operation like this seems to require some really long-term planning, doesn't it? If it is indeed, although they deny it, the Chinese state. What do you think or what do your sources think is the long-term ambition here? What's the strategy if it is indeed what what it appears to be? Well, long-term ambition is, you know, that's China's game. They play the long game in terms of their intelligence. What I'm hearing from multiple sources is this is totally indicative of that sort of widespread long-term game. They will basically shoot the net out as far and as wide as they can with the capabilities they have as a major supplier of these parts around the world, then pinpoint on areas that they find interesting. You know, the view is very much, we'd rather have everything and then dig into that to see what specifically we want than the other way around. From what I'm hearing from intelligence sources, that is a real trend of Chinese espionage. I think many listeners, myself included here, will be wondering what is being done to counter something like this. What are you hearing about those efforts from from the British side? Well, to be honest with you, from what I'm hearing, this has been quite a slow reaction. And the strip searching of the vehicles seems to be one of the first things that is being done, to be honest. As far as what I'm hearing, that was in response to these fears that China and other hostile states such as Russia were targeting government ministers or government staff. It seems they're pretty early on in their defence of these methods. And that's why, you know, MPs like Alicia Kearns have been calling for more action on this and for a quicker response to these widespread threats that that the UK is facing from hostile states. There's just simply not enough being done at the moment from their perspective, and they'd like to see more. We've published an article by Ian Duncan Smith, who's long been a kind of hawk on China. Do you think that his views on the Chinese threat are shared by others in Parliament? I think there is a growing trend of the understanding of this threat in Parliament, but I think that there's a natural reluctance to realise how our dependencies on countries like China have led us down potential national security vulnerabilities. I had one MP saying this was a case of reds under the bed which was obviously a reference to the US period of paranoia around communist agents. I'm not sure I agree with that assessment, but I think we have groups like Alicia Kearns at the Foreign Affairs Committee and also head of China Research Group, Ian Duncan-Smith, who's been very vocal on this for a while, Bob Seeley, another Tory MP, who has been campaigning for more uh, checks on, on our work with China, As more and more reports like this come out, MPs will be forced by their constituents to take a harder stance on this. The main issue, though, is the realisation that we are now so dependent on China for so much of our infrastructure. Opening that can of worms can sometimes be too hard to swallow for a lot of MPs. 
What do you think is the likelihood of any meaningful change in our relationship with China? You mentioned how dependent, you know, even elements of government are on China. Can you realistically see the UK pulling back from that as a result of these concerns? I think the big problem we have is the supply of important infrastructure from China and the cost of that supply. You know, there's a reason why car manufacturers and government get so much of their infrastructure from Chinese companies. And that's simply because it's it's cheap and readily available. It's been hard to find alternative sources for those pieces of infrastructure. And, you know, that continues to be the case. It's more of a case of learning to assess vulnerabilities quicker and deal with those vulnerabilities while trying to maintain some relation. We can't stand completely separately from China. They're a major superpower in in the globe, but it's a case of assessing properly the vulnerabilities of certain supply chains. And, And hopefully that's what the government was promising when they spoke about this. And just finally, you've covered plenty of other threats from other hostile states and foreign powers to the UK, particularly Russia. How does China rank compared to the threats from other nations, from the reporting that you've done over time? China is vastly becoming a very intellectual threat in terms of national security. They're a lot less heavy-handed than other attacks we've seen from states like Russia. But it's their ambition to basically scoop up as much of our personal data as they possibly can and become a tech totalitarian state. Other states such as, you know, Russia, it's a lot more rapid, it's, it's heavy handed. So I think they represent, as you know, any superpower does, they represent some threats, but I think it's much more discreet and it's a threat that slowly weaves itself into our infrastructure rather than, you know, hits us in the face and makes us react. And that's what's so dangerous about it, actually, is, is because it is so subtle. It does take a while to realise and try and undo that damage. And the work in undoing any damage to national infrastructure is then a long-winded one and a, and a costly one. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back on to talk more about this because it sounds like it's certainly not going away. Thanks so much again for making the time. Thank you. Reporting like this is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023 with trusted, impartial journalism straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators, join us now and get unlimited access to all of our journalism, subscriber-only newsletters from our expert columnists, and daily puzzles from just £3.33 a month when you sign up for an annual subscription. Subscribe and save when you join before the 23rd of January at inews.co.uk forward slash podcast. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. I, for Open Minds. Subscribe today. From spectacular photos of far-flung galaxies to a vaccine for malaria, 
Stories about the cutting edge of science inspire awe and excitement. But is everything we read in the news always as sensational as it looks? Magic mushrooms to cure depression? A miracle cure for Alzheimer's? Not so fast. I's new science writer, Stuart Ritchie, has been looking at how to avoid being caught out by hyped-up science in 2023 and how to never lose your cautious optimism about science making the world a better place. So, Stuart, how much of the science we read can we actually trust? It's a very good question because I think untrustworthiness comes in in a lot of different places in the process. So, you know, it comes in during the actual science itself. So like scientists can write their papers in such a way that kind of hypes up their results and they can do their analyses, like their statistical analyses, in ways that makes the results unreliable. And then, of course, it goes out into the into the world. It can be press released and that's a good place to hype things up. And then journalists can write about things in ways that can hype things up too. So there's loads of different places where a kind of untrustworthiness enters. And I think we have to just be on our guard, really, regardless of what we're reading about. And what are the signs that people might be able to look out for to indicate that what we're reading about perhaps is not as accurate as it could be? Well, I think a classic example, and we've had a few of these in the media recently, is people claiming like massive breakthrough results. So massive breakthroughs come about pretty rarely in science. Generally, science is like an incremental thing where you do every study is like another brick in the wall and it kind of adds to previous body of knowledge. And it's very rare that there's something that just like comes along that completely changes the way we think about the world, totally upends a a field of research. So I think when you see a headline that says there's been an enormous paradigm shift change in some scientific field, you should be on your guard and take that with um, maybe even more than just a pinch of salt. (laughs) One specific story that's come up as potentially little troubling, shall we say, is about a drug for Alzheimer's. Now, forgive me if I pronounce this wrong. I believe it is lecanemab. Some of the headlines that we saw around that were a breakthrough drug, as you mentioned there, that being a bit of a flag and a historic breakthrough. Talk us through this particular case. Yeah, I mean, in the context of Alzheimer's drugs, it was, at least at first glance, it was an exciting study. So the context is that we just haven't been able to make any drugs that work for Alzheimer's ever. It's just not been successful research field at all. It seems like a really hard thing to do to design drugs to slow down the cognitive decline and the symptoms in, in, in Alzheimer's. So, you know, Alzheimer's researchers and people who work for Alzheimer's charities and people who fund Alzheimer's research got very excited when this trial came out of Lecanemab. I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I don't think I've ever actually heard anyone say it. I've only ever seen it written <laughs> down. So my understanding is that, you know, the reason they got so excited was because this had just never happened before. They'd never had a drug that looked like it was showing benefits in a clinical trial. And there was a a clinical trial in what's meant to be the best medical journal in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine. So you can see why you would make that claim. But in a sort of objective sense, actually, you know, this is really just the star. It's a, a drug that had a small effect, possibly. And actually, the study itself has been pretty strongly criticized for instance, maybe exaggerating the size of the effect by the way they selected the participants in the trial. So it's a bit irresponsible to to make it sound like, oh, suddenly there is hope for people with Alzheimer's, when actually the benefits of this might not be realized for many, many, many years of, of you know development of the drugs and maybe development of new drugs that work on the same kind of principles. 
you know, there's always a question as to should you ever publicize new results when actually it's going to be a few decades down the line that they actually bear fruit in terms of uh, helping people or, or solving problems in the world. You know, and you've got to tell people about them at some point. But I feel like saying momentous breakthrough in the headline of the BBC article, when in the same article you have scientists that you've gone and interviewed and who are saying, well, they're not massive results. It's just something that we hadn't seen before. So who is at fault in a case like this? Is it journalists writing sensational headlines, not getting things right? Or is there an element of scientists misleading people as well? Yeah, I think in many cases, the call is coming from inside the house. That is, scientists themselves are the ones that are hyping up their results. So I used to be a scientist up until I started working at the Eye. I was a researcher at various universities and I uh, worked with the press offices. Sometimes they would come to you and say, oh, we hear, you, we hear you've got a scientific paper coming out. We want to do a press release. And, you know, those people are, are lovely people and I've had worked very well with them. But clearly, sometimes the pressure is to make the paper sound uh, much bigger than it really is, to make the results sound more exciting, to make the results sound more uh, groundbreaking or whatever phrase you want to use. You know, you can see why universities want this because it gets their name in the news and it makes it sound like really exciting new new breakthroughs are being made in their labs and all this kind of stuff. So universities have this incentive to get these press releases out that hype up the result. And actually, there's empirical evidence for that, too. Scientists have actually gone back and studied press releases and found that very many of them hype up the results. And the interesting thing is that in cases where the press release hypes up the results, often the news articles that come out after are hyped up. But where press releases don't exaggerate the results, the news articles often follow and keep the claims fairly circumspect. So actually, a lot of the blame does seem to lie on on, on scientists and their sort of university press officers. And sometimes that's because they think, well, I got to dumb it down a bit to put it into the press. So I can't mention all the complications, which I think is a bad idea. But also it's, well, I got to make it sound exciting because I want it to be uh, in the headlines. What about people who might be deliberately trying to mislead us about scientific results? I'm thinking here of what we saw during the COVID pandemic, for example, where there was a huge amount of misinformation spread around things like the COVID vaccine. Yeah, completely. I mean, there's an interesting question, actually, as to how much of that was deliberate and how much it was people who were just totally had the wrong idea in their head and kind of ran with it. And I think there's an interesting process where there are certain commentators, sometimes at newspapers, but often slightly more alternative media places like like YouTube, podcasts, places like that. You can sort of see where they start off with much more mild claims. Maybe they're kind of contrarian personalities and they start off saying, oh, well, do we need the lockdowns? All that kind of stuff. But then they kind of, there's this process where their audience, you know, they get audiences who expect them to be more and more and more contrarian and go against the kind of conventional wisdom. And it's been called audience capture, this process where you get captured by your audience, basically, and you start, you start sort of pandering to, to them. And over time, the claims become more extreme. It's not just that lockdowns are bad, but it's actually that the COVID virus doesn't actually pose any threat to anyone. And then it doesn't just become that, but it becomes the vaccines are actually worse and so on. And you can see in very many cases this fascinating process where I'm not sure if they're deliberately misleading us. But anyway, one fundamental thing you can say about those folks is that they're not questioning everything, right? They're only questioning one side. They're questioning the mainstream. And often the mainstream needs to be questioned. That's completely fair. But they're doing it in such a way that doesn't question the alternative experts that they're bringing on. These uh, anti-vaccine people who claim that they used to be scientists or used to be doctors or claim some level of expertise. 
you very rarely see anyone questioning them in a, one of these kind of podcasts or whatever. And so I think a kind of a, a flag that you should be worried is when someone only questions one side and never looks back and says, well, actually, the claims, the anti-vaccine claims are pretty weak as well and are based on misunderstandings too. You can see that there's clearly some agenda going on there. I think that's a really good tip, Stuart. What else could we be doing as part of our 2023 scientific resolutions to avoid sort of having the wool pulled over our eyes? Well, you know, if you go to the Royal Society, which is the UK body for supporting science, it's been around for since the 17th century, it's a big deal and a very prestigious institution and so on. They have a stained glass window that has their motto, and the motto is nullius in verba, the, the Latin for take nobody's word for it. And I think that is the fundamental thing that we should be doing and that scientists need to do more as well, really actually assess the evidence behind the claims that are being made. Now, it's not that everyone have the time or the expertise to assess the evidence for every claim, but I think there are places you can look to see whether something is a controversial idea or actually a good idea or based on a high quality study or a low quality study. And actually, one of the easiest places to do that is to just look on social media. Scientists spend an awful lot of their time, maybe too much of their time, on social media, tweeting about science, writing on Mastodon about science these days in various places about research. And that often takes the form of criticizing studies that have been in the headlines, saying, well, actually, this study that was just all over the news has only got a tiny sample size, or this piece of research fails to take into account this major confounding factor, whatever it is. So I think a really simple thing to do is to just take the web address of the article you've read or the, the original study, and just put it into social media and see what people are saying about it. Because I think that discussion can be really helpful. Now, obviously, if you do that, you'll get lots of low quality commentary as well. So you have to be a bit uh, careful about exactly what you read. And, but I think at least it can give you some arguments to consider to see whether people generally regard this as a really good piece of research or a really solid scientific claim or something that you should lower your certainty in and wait until more evidence comes in. I wonder if there are any particular bodies that, you know, people can maybe go to to look for information. You mentioned there the Royal Society. Are there any particular places that people could be looking if they wanted to learn more about the source of their information? Yeah, totally. One really good place that's relied on by many journalists for studies is the Science Media Centre. And what they do is when a new article comes out that looks like it might be controversial or looks like it might be getting media attention, they have a panel of experts and that's, you know, it's a very big panel of experts from across all different scientific fields. And they just email them and say, what do you think? And you often get on their website, you get like five or six little commentaries, just a paragraph long, written by each of the experts. You'll maybe get one person saying, I think this study looks great. I'm a big fan of this. You get someone else saying, actually, no, this is a terrible bit of research. Here's why. Or there's maybe a consensus that the study is really bad or a consensus that the study is really good. That's really the spirit of science, isn't it? That idea of reviewing each other's work. And just because an article has already been peer-reviewed and published doesn't mean it can stop being critiqued. It's up to the scientific community as a whole, and really all of us, to hold papers to account even after they've been published. Really very good tips. Now, we have been quite negative, haven't we, about scientific breakthroughs. So I wonder if there were any scientific studies that came out sort of last year or recently, which you've been genuinely optimistic about. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think we should ever have like blind faith that definitely a study is going to work out and be the next big thing and get into kind of that hype cycle. But there are lots of really interesting bits of research and really promising bits of research that came out in 2022 that I think will be followed up 
this year. Like there was some really interesting advances in batteries last year, like making batteries smaller and more efficient. Everyone saw the James Webb telescope, the uh, this amazing new NASA telescope that gave the clearest, uh, highest resolution images of far off galaxies. And some health-related things too. So there are vaccines. Uh, there was major progress made on the universal flu vaccine. So, you know, one of the big problems at the moment is that we have to update the flu vaccine every year because of new strains. But people have been working on a universal vaccine that will apply to all strains of, of flu, which would be enormously helpful. There's even talk of vaccines against certain types of cancer. There's really exciting stuff coming up often based on the mRNA technology that was developed for the COVID vaccines too. So there have been genuine breakthroughs. It's just that sometimes you need an awful lot of evidence to make sure that there are breakthroughs. So like the COVID vaccine studies were extremely rigorous. So we really have very strong evidence that they were a genuine scientific breakthrough. But it just took a bit of time and lots of evidence for us to really see that. That's, by the way, why the Nobel Prize Committee always wait very many years, sometimes decades, between you know a study being published and then it being given the Nobel Prize to check what its impact is, to check if other studies find the same results and check you know generally if it really was a major breakthrough. So maybe we should all just be a little bit more uh, calm about stuff and, and uh, a little bit less excitable while not losing that optimism. So lots of things to be excited about, but always with a pinch of salt. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely to have you on. Thanks very much. For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and take advantage of our price freeze, where until the 23rd of January, you can grab yourself an iSubscription for 2022 prices. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.